everybody hear this is fine? Everybody can hear this okay? Uh, all right, women. Where have we been? Where are we now? Where are we going? I should be able to wrap that up in 45 minutes, no problem. Uh, it's if, if to understand where we are and where we're going, which is what I find most fascinating in some ways, is, is to understand where we've been. In the entire archaeological and written history of civilization, there has never been a society even remotely equal to women. You have to, that you have to keep this clear. There's, there's been a few hunter-gatherer societies that have been, to a limited extent, matriarchal. Once you get away from but only a few, that's actually rare, even in the most primitive, small-scale societies. Once you move out of that, in the 8,000-year archaeological record and 5,000-year <coughs> written history of uh, civilization, there's never been a society even remotely close to equal. And the vast, vast majority of them have been so horribly, hideously repressive, it's hard to imagine. Uh, think Al-Qaeda. Taliban today, that is more or less the standard of women's uh, status, both politically and legally, uh, in society throughout the history as far as we have it, like I said, for 8,000 year archaeological and written history. That remains virtually unchanged in any significant degree until the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So now we're talking, you know, 17th century, uh, 18th century, things really begin to change. But in the inception of this change is very slow. One of my favorite historical details is uh, after the Civil War, we have Reconstruction, we have freed slaves. Freed black slaves got the vote 50 years before white women. Now think about the what that suggests about the way our society, which has been on the forefront of women's rights, uh, view of women is that we would rather give the vote to ex-slaves who are, you know, none too popular, right? These people are pretty low status. Um, and we, but we gave the vote to them roughly 50 years before we would give it to even educated, wealthy, white women. Right? That's, so, I mean, status, wow, really low, both legally and socially. And, and that was, you know, indicative of where we are. Um, and then you get, you know, the, the sort of women's liberation movement begins, the suffragette movement. Uh, by the way, there should be a holiday for the suffragette movement. I, I, you know, we have President's Day, we have Martin Luther King Day, which is great. We need a suffragette holiday because this is one of the most significant turning points. I just... It is, it is one of the great turning points in not just our history, but in the history of civilization. I mean, the, the, the various countries slowly uh, giving women uh, the beginnings of political equality. This is not a small thing. Um, we also say women were given the vote. This is absolutely inaccurate. Don't fall for this nonsense. Women took the vote. Uh, this is, this is a, that's a crucial distinction, right? It really, it, it is. There's a difference between someone going, oh, you know, well, this seems like a good idea, let's pursue it, and women saying, you know what, we demand that you begin to treat us as equals. But this was, the, of course, just the beginning. Uh, and now we're just pressing towards the 100th anniversary, by the way. So this isn't ancient history. This is just sub-100 years ago, right? We're getting, we're getting close. So women... You know, less than 100 years ago, or right around 100 years ago, begin to be, get the civil liberties, begin to get the vote in countries that have democracy, begin to be able to uh, enter the workplace in various roles. 
But this is a slow evolution. Few things uh, contribute to the liberation of women. One is uh, getting the vote, getting uh, greater political equality. Two is the beginnings of access to education. Um, in 1970, just an example, again, not ancient history, 1970, uh, there were about 3.5 million women um, pursuing baccalaureate degrees in the country versus over 5 million men. So there was still a huge gap even you know, just, just 40 years ago, that the gap was still, that's a 30% you know, difference. Um, that gap has been reversed, and we'll talk about that today. You also have uh, the whole notion of being able to have reproductive choice, birth control, a hugely liberating development that had both the scientific component, we got much better at providing options for birth control, and a social component, uh, making birth control both legal and accessible, because again, uh, you know, uh, many forms of birth control condoms in particular had been available for decades and decades prior to them being legal. Uh, we th it seems odd to us now, but condoms were illegal for a long, long time through almost everywhere in the world, and it was hugely controversial to try and begin to make them legal because, of course, this removes some of the onus of sexuality from the woman because now it's possible to have sex without almost certainly having a baby or at least having a much higher chance of having a, a pregnancy. The burden of which, of course, fell hugely disproportionately on women. So this development and access to birth control, uh, the increasing mechanization and modernization of the world gives women more opportunities into the workforce, um, increasing access to education and political opportunity has been happening at an increasing rate, but only over the last, again, 100 years maximum, really more like 50 years. So you begin to get birth control in the 1950s, both, again, scientific and legal revolution that allows for that birth control to exist and access to be readily available. Um, and so, again, this is accelerating. Just a few years ago, women, for the first time, passed men in workforce participation which means that more than half of the people working were women. And I don't know if anybody noted this at the time, if you track economics, is there were all a whole series of articles about, oh my gosh, you know, what does this mean? This is a terrible thing. And it's like, well, that only if you presume that men should make up the majority of the workforce. And you may have also seen all these articles about high rates of unemployment amongst men um, and when we sort of soft unemployment generally. But, but men do make up a slightly lower percentage of the workforce than they have, but this is against a background of women making up a, a greater participation than ever. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's, it's certainly a different uh, moment, but it looks a, more, a lot more like the liberation of women again, or at least the liberation of them having the opportunity to participate in the workforce. Which sort of brings us very rapidly, there's 8,000 years, 9,000 years of history for you, uh, very rapidly to today, which is sort of the where are we. The short answer where we are is if you're a woman, you want to live here and now. There's never been a better time if you're a woman to be alive. And with, you know, there's a few European countries and the United States. This is where you want to live. So congratulations, you got that right. Uh, for, for a woman, this is like, for basically anybody, but particularly for a woman, this is like the biggest lottery victory of all time. Uh, and, and so that's good. Um, but of course, th these things are not perfect. But what this means is now beginning to play out. And I want to, that's why I said we had to start with the history. 
For the preceding 10,000 years, the archaeological record of Sidi goes back about 8,000 years. For the preceding 10,000 years of the history of civilization, women have had the social and political status of roughly dogs. Over the last 100 years, primarily, a little bit before that, but over the last 100 years primarily, and the last 50 years, increasingly, women have achieved near parity. Uh, legally, they have parity. Social facts, you know, a little, little behind the curve, but, you know, making huge strides, both in education, opportunity, uh, economic power, legal power. The la you know, of our secretaries of state, you think, you know, it's amazing, Hillary Clinton, Condoleezza Rice, Madeleine Albright. I mean, th these, these are one of the most powerful positions in the world. Three of the last four ha have been women. It's an extraordinary uh, uh, achievement. When you, when you think about it, again, you know, the Secretary of State of the United States of America is one of the four or five most significant political positions in the world, um, and three of the last four. This is, this again, huge breakthrough in power, education, and opportunity. What this has been joined by, though, is a complete social revolution. Um, decline of marriage. Everyone, you hear all these people wringing their hands about the decline of marriage and increasing divorce rates. The divorce rate increases proportionally almost exactly as women become educated and financially independent. The more educated and financially independent women are, the more likely they are to divorce. Uh, which suggests rather strongly that the rules under which marriage had been operating for the preceding 10,000 years we're not very favorable towards women, right? Um, also, it, it's the, with single families headed by women, uh, hugely increased. Uh, women in the workplace, of course, once again, first time having crossed the 50% uh, ratio uh, with men. Education, today, there are uh, roughly nine million men receiving baccalaureate degrees or pursuing baccalaureate degrees in the country, a huge increase from 40 years ago. There are 12 million women, over 12 million women, which means the ratio, there used to be about 30% more men than women getting baccalaureate degrees. Now there's about 30% more women than men. So notice the acceleration, because they went from being way behind in 40 years to now way ahead, in just in, in ratio of attendance and pursuit. This is even slightly skewed because, believe it or not, most major schools now um, fudge their admittance standards uh, to get more men in. So men are actually held to a lower standard so that they can maintain some sort of vague sex ratio that doesn't, doesn't get out of hand. Uh, and this is, yeah, yeah, this is just it's sort of affirmative action for, for men because it turns out uh, women are, are, are out competing us uh, just straight on the merits. And so they actually do slightly bias uh, the admittance standards to try and keep the sex ratio in line. Uh, that's, again, this is a huge and dramatic uh, change. It also means things, I was pondering this in my own life, when I went to graduate school, the main people I worked with were Donya Samara, Young Sing Wu, and Elizabeth Kuhlman, uh, very, very brilliant graduate students, um, and myself, we sort of all worked together and helped each other graduate. Uh, and in my class, there were 55 uh, 
uh, people who entered my class, five graduated, got their doctor doctorate degrees, um, kind of a brutal system. Um, and uh, four of them, we were four of them, right? And I wouldn't have been one of them without Elizabeth Young, Singh, and Donya. I would have never made it. Uh, my dissertation director was uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Diane Elam, a brilliant, brilliant woman. Um, when I graduated and eventually came to work at Peninsula College, my first uh, boss was Deb Johnson, who hired me, a Harvard graduate, member of the AUW. Um, and then my current boss, well then Jackie Jardine Moore was my next boss, vice president, former vice president of the college, and then the current Anna Green is my boss. So almost my entire educational and professional career, I have worked with women and for women. This is the first time in history that that could even remotely happen. And it's almost not worth comment because it is so common now, particularly in academia where women are coming to dominate, um, that that can be an expected, normal, you know, just this is, this is how it is. But again, first time in history, anything like that could have happened. And a complete reversal, even from the 1950s, if you look at the ratio of both attendance and education. And this is starting to spread into other career fields. I don't know if a few years ago, now I think seven, the president of Harvard had to resign. People know this after he suggested that, well, women are making huge strides all over the place, but they can't really do math. He made, you know, so they'll, they're never going to catch up in that. And, you know, rightly so, not too long later, he decided he needed to resign and pursue other interests. Uh, this is a display, but notice, because he was a rather from an older generation, and so when he grew up and went to school and was educated, there were no women at all around that none, but, but almost no women at all. And then if he looked at the sciences and he looked at people of his generation, they were almost entirely men. Um, but what he had failed to notice is if he looked a little further down, that this, even in the hardest of science, you know, pure mathematics, this is changing dramatically. Um, and soon women will probably overtake even in, in, in the hardest science. It was just an opportunity issue. Um, it also showed a, a, a stunning ignorance, by the way, of what, what mathematics is, because there isn't not this thing called mathematics. There is, you know, mathematics is a vast field which has innumerable different ways of approaches and thoughts and, and uh, modes of pursuing ideas. And what will be interesting as women increase uh, their presence in mathematics is will there be any impact on the way women do mathematics? Probably not, but if there is, this would be astounding and interesting and fascinating. Uh, it might lead to breakthroughs that would not otherwise be made. But certainly, um, they, they have shown themselves to be completely capable. But that's how recent these changes are, that a president of Harvard, Harvard uh, not a neoconservative institution by any stretch of the imagination, has to resign after saying something that is so just stupid, yeah, just, just a while, stupid, yeah, awash in ignorance uh, and, and bias. And, and he said it off the cuff. He just, well, of course, this is just clearly just true, right? He just, it didn't really, it, it was a very sort of indicative uh, uh, remark. So th this is where we are. Again, best time, best place, if you're a woman, to be remarkable changes. What does this mean? Right, here's where it gets very interesting. Where are we going? If anybody tells you they know where we're going, they're lying. Nobody has any idea. We've never, this experiment has never been run. Again, this is completely unique. 
What's happening in the last 50, 100 years, but particularly the last 50 years, and it's continuing to happen, has never been tried. We've never tried to organize a society this way. And so what it means, we don't know. A few things you might note it, it have happened recently. If you go to Safeway or any other major grocery chain, by the way, they did a vast increase in their area given to prepared food, pre-made food. Why? Because until about 1960 or 70, we had roughly half the population who spent a good deal of their time preparing meals. We called these women. <laughs> right? This is what you did. Now, women did all kinds of other things, had jobs, but this was one of your social obligations and responsibilities. Well, that social assumption has fallen away. Uh, women just don't have time. They have, they have careers. The same reason supposedly men weren't making the meals is women aren't making the meals because they got other things to do. And it turns out that not every woman wanted to stay home and cook all day. This may come as a shock to you. Uh, but, but it's true. It's, uh, some women, occasionally one or two of them, might want to do you know, math. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but what this did is it left this huge hole. Because notice, we do eat. It's one of the things that we do. And the preparation and consumption of food was always a core uh, necessity. We, it's still a core necessity. We are going to continue to eat. So if you take the group of your, your population that had been sort of forced, whether they wished to or not, to do the cooking and preparation of meals, and say, look, you don't have to do that anymore, do whatever you want, and don't fill that vacuum, something has to change. And what changed is the amount of time that we spend eating out and eating prepared food. People like to complain about this and go, oh, our diets are bad, people eat too much prepared food, pre-processed or blah. No, the other way of thinking about it is, right, we liberated the people who used to do that. Isn't that a good thing? No, no one really predicted this, but it's a perfectly logical extension of the fact that you've liberated women um, from having to do something that they probably didn't want to do otherwise. Uh, if you look at education, there's all this hand-wringing about trying to attract quality teachers. And then they look back and they go, wow, look at this beautiful quality of teachers that we had in the 50s and 60s. So, I mean, what, what happened? One thing that happened is if you were an educated woman in the 50s and 60s, you had roughly one career path. That was to um, you know, become a teacher. If you take all the most motivated, bright women in the country and give them one possible job, you know what? You get some remarkably great teachers because you're creaming off brilliance and just shoving it into the school system, which is great. On one hand, hey, that's wonderful. On the other hand, it turns out that not every brilliant woman wants to be a school teacher, that they would like to pursue other opportunities and have other goals. And so there has been this sort of soft passion, and we're still trying to adjust. By the way, the same thing happened in the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, if you look at a post offices, were one of the first places that would hire African Americans. And so if you had any large African American population in your community in the 50s and 60s, most post offices could have been colleges. You look at the quality of the individuals who were working there. Doctorate degrees, master's degrees, higher education, great experience. They couldn't work anyplace else. They worked at the post office. Same thing with women. Again, if all of the women can be, you know, sort of classically nurses or teachers, well, sure, you have spectacular nurses and teachers. Because you take someone like Hillary Clinton or Condoleezza Rice or Madeleine Albright and force them to be elementary school teachers. I mean, they're going to well, have a disciplined class, number one. Uh, and number two, you know, they, they have skills. Well, those women have skills. They're impressive. They're ready to go. 
Uh, you know. Um, so one of the things that's happening is this revolution. I mean, truly, this is a true revolution. We don't know what it's going to mean. It has small sort of humorous ones, like I said, with cooking and where does food come from, and much larger ones um, that are still playing out. The whole dynamic of the family is changing as marriage becomes not the default norm. Um, basically, the history of the family begins to change again. Um, to something new. We don't know what it's going to change into, but something new and different, and that's a, that's a major social institution that's under dramatic change. So what does this mean as we look forward? Well, it means trouble, I think, <laughs> to, put, to not put too fine a point on it. Um, people like to talk about cultural uh, relativity and you know we should respect other cultures. That's a nice theory and practice. I think it's stupid. Um, it, primarily because if you look at something like women's rights, uh, many cultures in the world say, look, our traditions are to treat women like dogs. They don't put it that way, but that is the, you know, women are third-class citizens. They don't have uh, legal rights. They don't have rights of divorce. They don't, can't inherit money. They can't have jobs, and they shouldn't get education. That's just the way we do things. And they aren't lying. This is true. Many cultures are this way. Well, I just think that's not okay. You know, I think, I think you just look at that, and I say, you know, I, I'm Nice culture you have there is sort of respected, but mostly I think you have to change now. Um, this is a fundamental challenge. Um, if you look at uh, conservative Islam, we're at this sort of, you know, we're at war with them. You know, drone strikes, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, you know, bombings, terrorist attacks. They are right. They, when they attack us, they are correct. Our mode of life, their mode of life are completely irreconcilable. We cannot coexist together. Primarily, not exclusively, but primarily because we have videos and MTV. Uh, and on those videos and MTV and TV shows, women have jobs, they wear bikinis, they tell men to go away, they say, I like this man, I don't like that man. They might even say, I'm a woman and I like that woman. All of this would, is just unacceptable to them. You cannot have a conservative Islamic society in which women have equality. It can't be done. And so this is not a mistake. So they're fighting back. A lot of what this cultural conservatism is about is an attempt to maintain the clamps on women. Hence, what do they do? They attack girls going to school. They burn down girls' school. They, they create all kinds of barriers to prevent women from being educated from preventing them to have the opportunity of education so that they can pursue a workplace, which means eventually they're going to be able to become um, you know, politically and personally independent. They will not allow this to happen. This is, this is, this is going to be, it's like the suffragettes were not given the vote, they took the vote. It's a fundamental threat to their entire mode of existence. Uh, but this is not just the Islamic society, by the way. People know that Egypt had sort of a revolution, which is good, and then they had parliamentary elections, which was great. 454 delegates, 10 women. This was not an oversight, right? Egypt didn't forget that they had women. There is not a, like, crazy sex ratio in India, or Egypt, where there's, you know, 90% men and 10% women. No, once again, this is, they have a revolution, they're increasing their democratic representation. Excellent, excellent. Ah, but this is still a fundamental hurdle for them. Can they overcome it? Well, we're going to find out. It's being fought out on the streets of, of Egypt right now. 
uh, to the point where they have special bodyguards now for women who go to protest. So uh, uh, revolutionary men, have, because, because conservative uh, male groups have chosen out women, grabbed them and beat the hell out of them because they're women. Get them off the streets. If we can intimidate them and get them off the streets, we're halfway home. Right, so this, this battle is being fought right now. Uh, in India, the second largest political party is the, is the BJP, which is sort of a Hindu fundamentalist party uh, based on the thinking called the Hindutvan, as the sort of official uh, ideological name, I guess, for what they're pursuing. And the party is the BJP. And they are specifically built on the traditional family. And in India, the traditional family means women are very low. I mean, very low status. One of the issues they hate is any notion of alimony. If I ditch my wife, that is her problem. I should never have to pay alimony to her. Again, think of the dependency this creates. Um, and so again, you know, India, large population, and then this is being fought aggressively by the other party, or many of the other parties in India. Um, so again, the, the revolution is not done. Just recently in Japan, they changed the divorce laws, speaking of alimony, and it turned out that before this, if you got divorced from your husband, um, you had no right to his pension or his earnings. And so if you were, say, a middle-class woman and you divorced your husband, well, now you're unemployed. You may have no skills, and so you go from being sort of the respectable middle-class woman to being you know, a dishwasher or having to clean people's houses. You lose all of your social status, economic power, and, and lots of your opportunity. So you're stuck with the bastard. So, and very low divorce rates in Japan, not surprisingly. Well, they changed this law. In the two years in the run-up to the implementation of what, you know, sort of more consistent with what we have, where divorce is 50-50, you even get part of the retirement and pension package that your ex-husband would have. Divorce rates drop to zero, more or less. Because women, if you're going to get a divorce, you're like, ha-ha, I'm going to wait <laughs> for a couple more, like a year, <laughs> year and a half. And they started holding classes for men who were suddenly terrified. <laughs> and the classes were how to treat your wife well. And include, no, I'm serious. I'm not making this up. Because all of a sudden the men realized, oh my God, she can ditch me. That's an option now. And so they were exploring topics like why you should talk to your wife. <laughs> Just at some point, you might want to consider talking to her, you know. Might ask how she's doing. And so, and all these, you know, professional men who have been in 30-year relationships also are like, holy, I got to talk to who? What's her name? What's her name? My wife, that's right. right? And, and so, you know, again, these changes are going on. Uh, one of the things I think that's, that you're going to see, uh, basically, I think the old method, the traditional uh, family that the BJP, uh, conservative Islam is trying to promote, uh, you're seeing in Egypt, it's, it's done. It can't work. Uh, if you look at the Chinese, uh, China, which has had explosive economic growth over the last 50 years, part of that has been the liberation of women. They're not perfect yet, but they're working very hard at trying to get women's equality going in China. If you look at the financial success that India has also been having, uh, part of it is, is they have really been educating and liberating their women. This is still controversial there. It's the first wave. But think about this. If just pure economic power, how many countries can afford to throw away half of their intellectual capital? You can't, you can't do it anymore. 
In an agrarian society, sure, because you don't need that much intellectual capital. In an industrial society, maybe, but you probably need women in the factories at some level, and this is, of course, where the beginning of women's liberation starts to come from economically. But now that we're in a, in a technological society and world, you, you know, you just cannot take, well, half of our potential capital, we're just going to throw it away. You'll be, you're going to be outperformed. One reason the U.S. maintains their lead, despite how crazy everything we, we do, you know, other countries cannot figure out how we get things done because our politics are so goofy and we're so disorganized and we have no good systems, we also have the most liberated female population, again, with the exception of a few European countries. And so we are utilizing a huge resource that other countries have for generations been trying to throw away, in fact, actively repressing. But you, I don't think it's possible, and maybe I'll be wrong, I mean, this is one of my hopes, I guess. But I think the economic forces are so strong now. Let's say, look, if you have brilliant people, you need to educate them and give them opportunity. Uh, and they will help pay, pay back the cost of education. They will help contribute to your society. You need doctors? Well, you, you can't take half your potential doctors and throw them away. You need engineers? You can't take half your potential engineers and throw them away. You need teachers? can't just throw them away anymore. Um, and so that struggle, you're already seeing it all over the world, where you know, even in countries like Egypt, where they're going, wow, you know, we... We need to compete. We want to compete. They're not stupid people. You know, they're, they're as bright as we are. But how do we? Well, one way is you have to liberate this other half of your society. But what, when that happens, everything changes. This is back to where we are today. The reason everything is changing now is because when you liberate that other half of your society, everything changes. Women have their ideas of how they want to live. They have their ideas of how they want to raise their children. They have their ideas of what kind of careers they want to pursue. In the, in the Obama's address to the nation, he said, you know, let's have a national preschool, comprehensive preschool. Well, this is a women's liberation issue. If you have children and you have to take care of them at home, well, then this interferes with your career. It's just very straightforward. If, if you can't have the opportunity to not have to do that, well, this is, this is liberating. But notice it's a tension between responsibilities to family and children and the pursuit of career educational opportunities. Right? This is, this is not a, a, a cut and dried issue. But that's why it's on the table. I can assure you that if women were 25% of the workforce, it wouldn't be on the table. We would not be having a conversation about whether or not we should have mandatory preschool. Um, it's, it's or comprehensive preschool, not mandatory, but comprehensive available. And so and this is going on all over the world. These changes are fundamental. How much access should women have to uh, reproductive uh, services? Birth control. I mean, this is why all of a sudden in the last presidential election did birth control pop up as an issue? I mean, I was, I, for a moment I was stunned. I'm like, what? Who the hell is talking about birth control? I thought we, had, we were done. But notice conservative elements are talking about birth control because, right, because that is one of the rubrics. When women can begin to control, men and women can be able to control their reproductive choices, 
It's liberating. If you want to unliberate women, it's, you have to address that. You have to pull back that opportunity. And to the extent that women have free and total access to birth control and men and their partners, well, it's, it's hugely liberating. So it's, it's not a mistake when you reflect on it. It's not some crazy scheme they came up with. It's a necessary component of any attempt to address this. Um, and you're going to see this similarly, by the way, I, I would say, with other issues. You think they're done? They're not. Slowly they're going to be raised, probably crushed again, like the birth control thing. We're going to shake our heads and say, no, we have moved beyond that. But you're going to see these arguments in Egypt. You're going to see these arguments in India. You're going to see them in other places in the world. Uh, and, a, and a last note, like I said, because I, I think this is direction, the, the genie of women I don't think can be put back in the bottle anymore. But you never know. Things, things change. It's a crazy world, crazy history. Um, but one of the reflections I had on this is people look back to the 1950s for some reason as this golden era. You always hear all the great 50s, the glorious 50s. You know. Historically, that's completely untenable, by the way. Uh, there, there's no evidence the 50s were a particularly wonderful period uh, in, in basically any way unless you were a white male. Because if you were a white male in the 50s, you didn't have to compete with women. Well, that's half the population. And you didn't have to compete with African Americans or Hispanics. So, you know, another 15% of the population. Sure, well, that's a golden age, back in the day when I didn't have to compete with anybody. Life was great. You know, I, it, it, it was much easier for me. And so the changes that are wrought now affect not just our present, but our retroactive appreciation of the past. Right? Again, everything is changing. All of a sudden, why are the 50s a golden age? Well, that was back when women, we didn't have to compete with them. When everything was just, if you're a white male, like I'm for me. But as we move into the future, like I said, these changes are going to go on. No one knows, like I said, I still say, we don't know what this means because this experiment has never been run. Um, but I would say, argue that, that and, and wrap up with this and then take a few questions, is that so far the experiment seems to be going really well. Uh, and, and I think it only have probably uh, dramatically positive impacts as it spreads throughout the world. And so we, we do have the opportunity to live at one of the most interesting uh, and hopeful times in history. And so, yeah, there you go, women, where we were, where we are, and where we're going. Thank you. And, and questions. <laughs>